Hi, I'm Charles Critchell, and I'm the founder and editor of Fair City, a London-based city transport think tank which aims to advocate that city transport can be more accessible, equitable and sustainable for the users it serves. And I'd like to start by welcoming you to our Insight series, where in each episode a guest and I will discuss how COVID-19 has specifically impacted the transport network and urban fabric of a global city, and the ways in which this could develop both during and beyond the current pandemic. Today we're focusing on London, UK capital and the first of our global cities. Known as the Big Smoke, London sits in the southeast of England and has grown around its famous river, the Thames, which has historically been at the commercial and cultural heart of the city. With a modern-day population of just under 9 million people, the city is widely revered for its financial, cultural and hospitality sectors. I'm delighted to be joined today by Marco Picardi. Marco is a charter town planner and works as a strategic urban planner in both London and more recently Cambridgeshire. Marco is also the co-founder of London Car Free Day. Hi Marco, for those who are perhaps unfamiliar with London, can you briefly explain a bit about the city's pre-pandemic transport landscape and why you wanted to introduce a city-wide Car Free Day? Sure. Um, London, like many other cities, is facing this paradox of falling car ownership and increasing congestion, which is in part due to a sort of platformization of our economy where ride-hailing apps and delivery services are becoming verbs, um, and also due to some of the peculiarities of London's development itself as led by private speculation as opposed to central planning. But this is having some significant impacts on our roads as while you might be taking less trips yourself, your trip impact is increasing and that is uh, worsening air quality which the Greater London Authority, the GLA, um, sees as contributing to thousands of deaths each year in the city. It contributes to sedentary lifestyles and London boroughs often feature at the top of uh, childhood obesity league tables in the UK. And given that we're living in smaller and smaller homes, often without access to outdoor amenity, our streets, which represent about 80% of the city's public space, are increasingly an opportunity to be rethought of um, as places as opposed to functional spaces that only cater for movements of the most amount of goods from A to B. So Car Free Day was born there to have a day free of cars to get people to open their imaginations to what their streets could be and to raise the ambition of the city as a whole. Um, But I think when we're talking about London, we need to recognize that there is no one London. Um, (laughs) There are multiple Londons. Not only is there the GLA that I mentioned before, which is this sort of overarching body and it's transport arm, Transport for London, TFL, um, that looks after passenger transport and the strategic highway network. There are also 33 local authorities and all of these local authorities run their own municipal services from waste to housing, but importantly have um, are the highway authorities. And within these boroughs, you know, we have hugely disparate conditions. Uh, We have inner London 
is much more dense and akin to in some parts european style densities whereas outer london the car is definitely still king um much lower densities and uh, fewer public transport uh, access points and then we have a massive divide between north and south of the river if you just look at the tube map um the south of the river is much more reliant on suburban commuter railway versus high frequency trains that is provided by the london underground so it's a very complex picture within this in the last decade or so there have been quite significant improvements in london um there have been the in introduction of uh the cycle superhighways um, which are these radial routes primarily for commuters to cycle into the city of london um and they have collectively with quiet ways these alternative suggested routes on quieter streets become cycleways there's been the integration of some suburban routes as an overground network um, and significant public realm improvements with the peninsularization scheme that has seen big gyratories across london turned into more pedestrian friendly places then of course there's the big crossrail um infrastructure project that is a, a a new capacity for uh trains and public transport in london that will provide a much needed income stream for tfl who now don't have a government grant so i know that's a long answer but it's quite a, i think it's important to note for those not familiar with london that it's a complicated kind of ecosystem of moving parts that each shape each other in some ways yeah i think those are some really good observations and if i just take one which is that north of the river you have the high frequency tube network while south of the river is predominantly the commuter railways which are now of course carrying very few passengers owing to the altered work patterns which many londoners are experiencing so while some including key workers are being required to commute to work as normal Many others, such as those in financial, media and professional service sectors, are now working from home. So how do you think that the remote working model looks once the immediate crisis has passed? And how does this then impact upon those commuting in and out of London? Yeah, for those lucky enough to be able to work from home and to still be in a job after this crisis, certainly a key challenge will be where to work from, when to work, and how to work. In 2014, there were huge tube strikes in London that paralyzed the public transport network. And um, LSE economists analyzed Oyster Card data um, to see the effects of that strike on people's commuting patterns. And one in 20 commuters these are people who have extremely well-honed routes into work change their behaviors in the long term that's five percent of people so you can imagine that again potentially here there will be a significant change in the way that we work but of course that relies on a number of things i mean there's the tech element and i'm sure that there will be a, a second wave of conference apps that improves the experience of um, 
speaking to people online and replicates the kind of intangible things that that people are um are are missing from their their day-to-day interactions equally there's a digital fatigue that we need to be aware of and there's people do crave a return to normality but i think that you know there are already cases in other parts of the world where um that we can learn from in trying to uh, improve the transition to work if we think uh, in singapore they already have huge peak spreading initiatives where they i think the metro provides incentive points for you to travel at different times and i remember reading somewhere in abu dhabi there was a, a a street where all the schools that every school in this town was located on one street and it caused huge congestion and just staggering work times relieved that so i think there will need to be some more robust measures and working with employers to either ensure that people have the opportunity to work from home as they have done and i'm sure a lot of that will be employee driven um but also to stagger work times so that the um network is less congested and at the same time we need to improve capacity as you mentioned the um the south london being highly reliant on commuter rail and not to mention that all of the UK's busiest stations are located in London because its population goes up significantly during nine, between nine and five on weekdays. Um, so this might accelerate some things like TfL's takeover of suburban rail, but also their collaboration with third-party apps like Google Maps to nudge new routes. Um, so it's it's going to be a complicated um it's going to be a complicated transition where i think there's there's a link between the individual desire to change but also our collective um government side approach that will need to support that and either way what we need to do is ensure that there's going to be some kind of sustainable long-term policy decisions that help facilitate this transition in in the in the best way possible. Yeah, so I think that's a good point and particularly interesting what you say about a government side approach. And I think it would be worth reflecting on governance for just a second, as of course much of what's currently going on is being directly influenced by decision makers at both national and regional levels. So if you just turn to governance and innovation, many cities across the globe seem to be unanimous in the actions they have taken to keep people moving while responding to the unique set of circumstances of the pandemic. So these actions include closing streets to cars, installing emergency cycle lanes, and widening pavements for pedestrians. However, in London there seems to be a reluctance to innovate, the prime example being a failure to implement emergency cycle lanes, which have been ruled out by TfL, owing to complications with road junctions. So while some are frustrated by London's ability to adapt, Others feel that the mayor's team are simply moving too slowly when compared to other cities. So why do you think this is? It's a, it's a difficult one. I think it's, it's tied up in the systemic kind of overlapping patchwork of governance that um, I alluded to earlier. 
because in in public authorities there are lots of good people who have great ideas and some of them already doing great things hackney are, are filtering streets for example already um and there there's a thriving private sector um planning organizations in uh, a community in in london where you have companies like urban movement and pja that are actively lobbying government for changes and the same goes for non-governmental organizations like sustrans and living streets who have done the same and some companies like brompton bikes have been providing um, their cycles to key workers to access um, their workplaces in a healthy way with new bikes and I think it's a it's a very complicated picture in London as a result of these different tiers of governance and I, I would quite like to see a more of an open innovation type approach taken um, there was an article a, a couple of weeks ago um, by Henry Cheeseborough from Berkeley and he he was talking about something completely different innovation in ventilators and he was saying why is it why can't regulatory systems for ventilators say a, a ventilator is approved in Japan what there's no reason for that ventilator not to be used in other countries say Spain or Portugal um, if the Japanese regulator publishes all the data that uh, goes with their justification so it's the same in, in why can't we apply that for, to transport if there are innovations that are happening elsewhere Berlin has published a, a manual on tactical urbanism in response to the crisis why can't we apply that if we see their evidence base for it elsewhere and I, I think that there is scope in the future especially in this new paradigm of forced experimentation and comparative governance where we're looking where elsewhere constantly at where things are working or not why can't local councils um, help each other and work more collaboratively yeah and I think there's a lot in that and I just want to actually go back to an earlier point you made about Hackney being the first local authority to start looking at filtered streets as it is just worth mentioning that recently the Department for Transport actually introduced traffic regulation orders, or TROs, which essentially enable local authorities to act autonomously and introduce emergency measures as long as they are, of course, compliant with the government's Coronavirus Act. But if we just think about London's long-term strategy for a second, we've already stated that the London Mayor is the Chair of Transport for London and is therefore ultimately responsible for the city's transport network. So one of TfL's key slogans is to keep London moving. While this is certainly the right ambition, the way in which this is currently being achieved, with an example being the suspension of the congestion and ultra-low emission zones, seems to be at odds with the more progressive approach adopted by other cities, such as Berlin in Germany and Bogota in Colombia, which are of course prioritising walking and cycling. Do you then think that a contributing factor to the current response is that there simply isn't a longer-term transport-orientated ambition for the city, especially if you compare London to Paris? The incumbent mayor, Anne Hidalgo's pledge to turn Paris into a 15-minute city. Uh, well, yeah, the 15-minute city from Paris is genius in that 
it's immediately um, easily understand and easily understandable what they're trying to achieve there, um, and it shows their capacity to think in a holistic way about planning. Um, here in London, there has been a change in approach in recent years with um, the healthy streets adoption, which has prioritised user experience over simple movements as um, the key metric for uh, for our streetscapes. And that is definitely a good step towards the 15-minute city, but it's lacking in that cogent linking of disparate things like food supply and culture and mobility. And that's the kind of thinking that we need to integrate into our into our approach to transport. I, I think part of it um, is that there is a lack of organic coordination between our professions in the built environment here. And while planners, spatial planners, transport planners, architects and engineers will work together on projects, often I find that and this isn't always the case, but often these projects reinforce those silos rather than break them down and help create collaborative decision-making. So the transport expert will be asked for a singular transport solution as opposed to being able to contribute elsewhere. And so, as I mentioned before, in this new era of forced experimentation, perhaps it's the, it's time for us, a long-term vision would represent a system that is able to react and adapt and collaborate quickly to adopt changes and implement them at scale. It's interesting that you talk about the role of professionals, as I think that what the pandemic has in fact highlighted is the emergence of hyperlocal governance, whereby people are taking to the streets and doing stuff for themselves and their communities which does in fact go one step further than one of Car Free Day's own key messages, which encourages city users to, in inverted commas, ask for it. So a prominent example of this is Barnes in southwest London, where residents have successfully used traffic cones to widen local pavements. So do you think that the emergence of hyperlocal governance structures, such as community and resident groups, is an effective way of delivering short-term transport improvement measures specific to the needs of different localities it's a good question i think is there is there anyone better placed to respond to an issue on their street than the person who works or lives there i mean you can see it in the response to this crisis with the growth of mutual aid groups everywhere that have informally connected people together to create these networks of care how communities they do first then they assess and then they plan which is pretty much the inverse of a local authority who would assess then plan and then do um, and it's interesting how different areas have had different responses I, I've seen in Waltham Forest some people have drawn on on the pavements to label different flora and trees to tell people what they are as they go on their daily walk um, 
and obviously there are all the videos going around of, of people singing in the street and i wonder whether or not this will translate into a more robust um and lasting uh community interest that will be reflected in the planning system because there already are significant tools within it for communities to take ownership of their neighborhoods the localism act um brought about this thing called neighborhood plans in the uk that a lot of different communities have created neighborhood forums to write a plan for their area and in the past this has you know been the domain maybe mainly of retired professionals but now that people are spending more time at home and in their community there might be a renewed effort for of people wanting to get involved in setting up those kinds of initiatives and then we have uh, other tools like play streets that enable communities to open their streets to pedestrians and close it to through traffic without incurring the fees um, that you would normally have to pay to, to open up the street. So I'm sure that this, uh, that this kind of micro decision-making, as you call it, from a community perspective will be a, an increasingly a, a bigger feature in our planning system. So if you now turn to transport specifically, but stay with the theme of car-free day and car-free cities, many cities have been quick to regulate the use of cars in their streets, particularly in America, with examples including Oakland and San Francisco on the west coast to Philadelphia on the east coast. However, there is much to suggest that others may revert to car dependency once the pandemic passes, as traffic congestion in many Chinese cities is again returning to pre-pandemic levels. What do you think happens in London in both the short and longer term, and why? The first Car Free Day was in um, 2018, I think, but it just didn't have mayoral uh, activities associated with it. And the second one was in, in 2019. So obviously, coming from a Car Free Day perspective, we would like to see, rather than these large-scale tokenistic one-off events, that car free days are used systematically within the policy making process to test different streets for pedestrianization or limited access um, and then i i think it, it probably comes back to the earlier question how how do governments look to their communities as the lead users of their transport systems to help the, help support the implementation of what they want so are there mechanisms to enable people to depave their streets or to um, build uh, build outs on the end of their uh, at the you know the entry treatment to roads or continuous footways so that it's a more pedestrian friendly environment is there a way for a, a closer interface that brings communities and government together to collaboratively make decisions on the public realm so i think that's um that's the key challenge uh that all short-term 
measures need to have this kind of long-term optic and be very considerate and responsive to community needs. So if we're talking about short-term measures, obviously a lot of people are currently forgoing their cars owing to the lockdown. But longer-term behavioural shift is undoubtedly important and is something which many politicians themselves are alluding to in stating that we simply can't return to business as usual. Now, if this is applied to city transport and climate change, it would suggest that we need to do more to discourage car dependency. However, rather than embracing change, many city users would probably welcome a return to normality, which the car is seemingly such an integral part of, given its more traditional associations with progress, autonomy and freedom. How hard then do you think it will be to change the mindset of many car users, which prior to the pandemic may have considered foregoing their cars, but now may feel more dependent on them than ever. I mean, there is a a strong temptation to return to the car and people have talked about drive-in cinemas making a return or even the drive-in supermarket. But we have to realise that those kind of short-term, potentially comfortable um, types of initiatives would... uh, would only perpetuate and worsen our resilience in face of the oncoming climate crisis. So I think it's a it's a combination of improving the capacity and for people to find alternatives to the car and providing incentives for them to get out of their cars and in that way kind of lower the barriers to active travel and public transport that can be done in a safe way i mean is it reasonable to expect someone living in outer london with no footway or you know constant drop curbs and uh having to go and uh, walk for miles to their nearest public transport station um to get out of the car if, if there are no alternatives I think, you know, the there's going to be a big challenge to create safe cycle routes. Um, maybe there will be something like a, a cycle to work scheme equivalent for cargo bikes at home so that people can access cargo bikes to go and do their shopping on. Is that something that we might do if people are going to be working from home more? Um, footways is such a basic, but in so many outer London areas, you know, the pavements are, are not fit for purpose um, and do not prive, uh, provide a, a safe space for walking around on. And it's, it's, I, think, I think, you know, those people that are going to be wedded to their cars, that there needs to be a phasing out of combustion engine cars towards electric vehicles, which of course come with their own issues and uh, are far from uh, a panacea. But um, to sort of help the initiatives, the soft initiatives and the the hard streetscape initiatives, the um, I think there's going to be a big move towards working with businesses to help them rethink their travel patterns and with other kind of peak bodies uh, like schools. Like I know that, Charles, you do a lot of work with them. Um, how can we help those key points in the community to transition towards more active 
healthy and sustainable travel modes. So you mentioned alternatives to the car, such as cargo bikes and more broadly active travel, but looking at public transport, it's probably not unreasonable to assume that part of people's reluctance to forego their cars is due to these alternative modes, which for many in London means trains, tubes and buses. So while other cities have been able to suspend fares as they are not the primary source of income for those cities' transit authorities, in London, TfL rely on passenger fares for 72% of its revenue compared to just 41% in New York and 36% in Paris. So given that, how reluctant do you think Londoners will be to use the city's public transport? And what do you think the longer term implications of this may be for TfL? Well, this is a another key issue uh, facing TfL. It's a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of sword of Damocles for TfL, where if if uh, you know if people move away from public transport where are their revenues going to come from you might see things like an acceleration in curbside charging for drop-offs and pickups to try and identify some new alternative revenue sources um but you know it's likely that many people have no choice and have to continue going on public transport so how do we make it a, self, uh, a safe environment for them? And the, there will be no doubt social distancing probably on these services, but then to enable that, we need more frequent services and greater capacity. So it will be interesting to see, as I said earlier, there might be an, um, an accelerated push for TfL to take over some of the commuter routes to make them more um, frequent in service and uh, yeah it remains to be seen it's, it's going to be a, a, a very difficult time if people are moving away from public transport for TfL to continue to provide good services if they are no longer having um, government support and can't get revenues out of um, ridership So interestingly, some commentators have speculated that unlike 2008, this is going to be a tax-led rather than a cuts-led austerity. So it could be a case of TfL trying to leverage more revenue via taxes and business rates, or as you say, something along the lines of curbside charging. So if indeed public transport is slow to recover, many active travel advocates are optimistic that some of these users may then turn to either walking or cycling, which seems to be supported by a record number of bike sales in some London cycle shops. However, TfL's own 2018 cycling action plan suggested that many people were turned off by cycling as they didn't identify as being a cyclist. What other types of issues do you think that those who don't traditionally walk or cycle in London may face if trying to make a switch to active travel from either public transport or cars? Well, I mean, just to pick up on the TfL point quickly, perception has been a big issue around cycling you know the the original cycle super highways seemed to prioritize the commuter which tended to favor a certain type of cyclist maybe a middle-aged sort of white male speeding along on their bike and tfl's made some significant um, changes to the way they represent cycling on the literature you can just look at the front covers of different 
manuals that they publish how they've transitioned from the helmet lycra clad cyclist towards a more inclusive representative picture of cycling but certainly perception of cyclists is, is a big issue for people um that can't uh, that, that are reluctant to cycle now but for those who do make that transition to more active travel i think they'll be surprised about how unsafe it can be to to cycle on london's roads um not only cycling but walking as well the footways are as i mentioned previously are often inefficient not only not being two meters wide uh, often most of london streets i imagine um but also but also not not being fragmented and not existing in various places and, and you'll find as a pedestrian as opposed to being on a car that you have to touch a button to cross at various points and that in the context of a pandemic is something that maybe people will be hesitant about doing and they'll they'll realize that active travel actually requires a, a lot more support and perhaps this will galvanize new support for uh, community-driven requests for change um, you know one of the biggest barriers to cycling is storage space will people ask for local bike hangers or um, Sheffield stands to park their bikes safely in their neighborhoods alongside shared paths or segregated cycling facilities and uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see how um, people adapt to it. I would suggest that anyone who is cycling for the first time in London or walking around seeks out their local cycling group or um, or walking group and uh, seeks to see what they're up to. Yes, I think that the safety and quality of streets is surely one of the biggest issues which the pandemic has highlighted along with the disparity between a city's public space and the needs of its residents. So though overcrowded housing and a lack of private outdoor space is especially apparent in London, so too is the inequitable distribution of both street space and open space. So if you just focus on street space and inequity, the current pandemic is clearly emphasising the spatial imbalance between pavements and roads. Are there any measures which you think would enable Londoners to get more from the city's street space? both during and beyond the current pandemic? Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, there, there are a number of short-term measures that, that can have a, a long-term impact. Um, I, I would strongly urge people to apply for their local street to become a play street so that they can close it to through traffic. And it's a very low-fi way to get people to reimagine their street, but also to provide that safe spatial distancing for people. And we've actually called at London Car Free Day that every residential street in London should become a play street by default, so that if communities want to open up their streets, they should be able to do so without ever incurring uh, a charge. And uh, in, in the long term, maybe these kind of initiatives, I, I think, you know, this crisis has really amplified some of the 
abstract elements of our economies and food supply being one of them, these massive queues outside supermarkets, the crowding in parks, you know, people that don't have outdoor space. How do we bring these things together? How do we create more open space and maybe more resilient food supply chains? I tend to see, I, I think that it's going to be inevitable to help accelerate the urban farming movement and that local councils should be looking at, you know, one in X number of streets being converted to allotments or at least exploring um, the conversion of some of the car storage areas, i.e. on-street parking, into food growing areas or, or small gardens um, to help increase uh, resilience in, in, through the public realm. And uh, perhaps that could be tethered to social housing or other types of housing. But I, I think here there's the, there's going to be there's going to be a, a lot of change in, in the way that we think about our streets, um, especially if people continue to work at home more and continue to use their local streets for their allotted exercise time. Yes, and I think this really ties into the idea of the 15-minute city, which we were talking about earlier. And as you say, almost shortening the supply chain for some of these food initiatives, alternatively planning for a more consistent clustering of amenities. However, if we now step away from the city's streets to focus on its open spaces, there has been a lot written recently about the use of parks for city dwellers across the globe. Perhaps nowhere more so than in London itself, where one of the biggest parks is located in one of its poorest boroughs. So here we're talking about Victoria Park located in Tower Hamlets. So the park was temporarily closed as people were failing to respect social distancing regulations. In view of this, what role do you think that not only big city parks, but pocket parks or even linear parks in place of streets, may play in the future of the city, given the current imbalance between open space and residential populations? Yeah, open spaces is, is such a... They're such key assets for our cities, aren't they? And the, the key difference really between streets as open spaces and parks as open spaces is has got to be the the soft versus the hardscape. You know, when you're on a street your the hard surfaces contribute to the urban heat island effect by absorbing sunlight and emitting heat, whereas plants absorb sunlight and emit vapour to create a more cooling environment. And in cities often where we where we don't have access to um to nature, parks are, are a great relief that can help with, with our well being. So I I I see a massive opportunity uh, as I mentioned before in terms of if, if one of the things people have said that this is an anti-urban crisis you know that people are moving out of the city they're going to want to move to more rural locations well why don't we bring the garden into the city you know and there, there are initiatives already out there in london that there was the national park city um which was about uh, a, a geographer dan raven Ellison, rethinking the city as a park to celebrate its natural elements, even the most improbable ones, and to galvanize 
a sort of localized care for those places. I think that linear parks to connect our, to connect different green spaces, but also pocket isolated spaces of green are going to be increasingly important in the city. And, and our local authorities need to find a way to respond to this need. Um, I mean, if you look in Paris, one of the best examples of a of a, a new park created in the last few years is the Petite Centure, which is this circular park that goes all the way around the city um, on an abandoned railway line, connecting various different parks as it does that. And so I, th I think, yes, they, they have a role to play. B, why don't we think about it in an integrated way to connect up different green spaces? And C, the challenge really is on, on local authorities on how do they promote it and support people's desires for more green space in the city. Yeah, so as you say, parks are not only crucial in facilitating physical well-being, but perhaps more importantly, mental well-being as well, especially given the current situation. Let's just expand upon this idea of health and the environment and look at the ways in which city planners are viewing the pandemic as an opportunity to design more resilient cities, which are better protected against unforeseen events in the future. So how do you think that city planners should be looking to design resilience into London's transport and urban infrastructure as a way of promoting additional health benefits? Well, resilience ultimately is about options, isn't it? I mean, you can think of the city as a network of nodes and links. And if one of those links or nodes breaks, then you want to be able to have other links and nodes that you can use. And so, a distributed or decentralized uh, system for transport is key and here we, we, we need to go beyond thinking about transport as an isolated thing it needs to be integrated into the way people work it needs to be there needs to there needs to be a closer collaboration between different sectors both in in within the public sector but also with communities and, and the private sector. And to me, resilience will also be about enabling sort of lead communities who come up with their own solutions or interesting examples um, in their streets to enable them to support those communities doing what they're doing and learning from them to apply that elsewhere in the city. So it's a, uh, it's again a kind of understanding the city as an ecosystem and not being overly reliant on any singular aspect. It's a nice point about how we can understand the city as an ecosystem. And I think that part of this will be that different city systems or infrastructures will not only be developed but need to change. So if you look at hard or physical infrastructures, some people have suggested hand washing stations around the city versus the soft or operational infrastructures, such as intensive cleaning cycles for public transport. Finally, if we now look at the implications of the pandemic on climate change, and the fact that several of the world's most polluted cities, including Delhi and Bangkok, are reporting record low air quality index levels as a result of city-wide lockdowns. These measures clearly show that while it's possible to quickly improve the level of air quality in a city, the draconian way in which this has been achieved 
is clearly not viable as a long-term solution. So how do you think city authorities would be best advised to build upon this environmental progress when cities resume their daily activities in future? Yeah, again, a very, very important challenge. I mean, there have been some studies that have shown the correlation between the spread of the pandemic and um, areas that have a higher air pollution. So certainly returning back to um, business as usual in inverted commas is, is undesirable for a, for a number of ways. And, and there are, the way that we transition out of this is gonna have a, a huge impact on the long term. I think just to echo probably what I've said elsewhere, the short term actions that occur need to have that optic in the long of a long term vision and need to be experimental they need we need to understand everything that we do as an experiment and to learn from it and change our actions as a result of it so if there's if there's one thing that I think city authorities need to do is embrace this kind of experimental mindset that we're forced into now and to continue refining that in the long term. Yes, and I do agree that it is the job of city authorities to embrace a more experimental mindset. But I think it's also just worth pointing out that those who are leading the way, including Oakland in the US, Bogota in Colombia and Auckland in New Zealand, were in fact already embedding these types of measures in both their planning and transport policies prior to the outbreak of the pandemic. Okay, and so that's it for today's conversation. Thank you very much, Marco. How did you find that? That was great. Thanks so much, Charles, for your time and uh, great conversation. So just a reminder that you can find out more about the good work which London Car Free Day are currently doing by heading to londoncarfreeday.com or you can find them on Twitter at carfreedayldn. I'd also like to thank you for joining us and if you did enjoy today's episode, please do take the time to leave a comment, tell your friends and of course please do subscribe. Finally, please join us again for our next episode where we'll be taking a look at how another global city is responding to the transport, urban and environmental challenges posed by COVID-19.